It's Wednesday, the 18th of December, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, the impeachment of Donald Trump. They're impeaching me, and there are no crimes. This has to be a first in history. They're impeaching me. You know why? Because they want to win an election, and that's the only way they can do it. The U.S. president faces a key impeachment vote later today, but with a Republican Senate almost certain to stonewall the process, we'll ask what it's really all about. Plus, dark days ahead for public broadcasting in Britain, Bangkok's sky-high ambition for its local agriculture, and our business editor, Venetia Rainey, pleads for a bit of privacy, especially from the prying eyes of big tech. I'm Ben Rylan in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. U.S. President Donald Trump is expected to face a key impeachment vote today, which, if successful, will soon see proceedings move to the Senate. That's where things are likely to hit a roadblock. The Senate is controlled by the Republicans, and Democrats would need at least 20 GOP senators to turn against their own president if they're to force him out of office. But evicting Trump from the White House has never really been the driving force behind this impeachment. Scott Lucas is a professor of U.S. politics at the University of Birmingham. This week is kind of the easy part, if you want to put it that way, in that the House of Representatives, which has a Democratic majority, will almost certainly vote to impeach Donald Trump. That's the equivalent of criminal indictment. The trickier part to project is what happens in January in the trial in the Senate, the upper chamber, where it's the Republicans who have the majority. Will the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell try to block any witnesses from either side, try to block any provision of documents, in effect turning this process into almost like a rubber stamping exercise, which is that giving the appearance that there's a trial, in fact, there isn't. As my uh, relatives would say in the South, when you have an unwanted relative, here's your hat, watch your hurry. And Mitch McConnell thinks that a trial is very unwelcome and is going to take that same attitude. In the short term, however, that means that this is not a Republican Party as much as it's a it's a Donald Trump party in which Donald Trump's main interest is not the long term future Republicans. It's his survival. So even if the Republicans get through this trial, and I think they will with Donald Trump staying in office, even if some of them retain their positions in November 2020, even if Donald Trump gets a second term and it is possible The Republican Party, in terms of actually serving the American people, serving the American people when a man in the White House has been accused of abusing power, that's the long-term damage to the party as well as to the American system. Britain's Prime Minister has been known to go to rather extreme lengths to avoid potentially difficult questions. He's refused interviews, hidden in fridges to avoid reporters, and shortly before last week's election, failed to sit for a leader's interview with the BBC, prompting this extraordinary rebuttal by the presenter, Andrew Neil. But leaders' interviews have been a key part of the BBC's primetime election coverage for decades. We do them on your behalf to scrutinise and hold to account those who would govern us. That is democracy. We've always proceeded in good faith that the leaders would participate. And in every election, they have. All of them until this one. 
Now Boris Johnson is accusing the BBC of anti-conservative bias and threatening to decriminalise the non-payment of the television licence fee here in Britain. So, should the BBC be worried? Monocle's Georgina Godwin has been speaking to James Rogers, head of international journalism studies at City University of London and a former long-time correspondent for the BBC. Georgina. Let's start by reminding ourselves of the extraordinary attack by Andrew Neil, a prominent interviewer with the BBC, on Johnson. I mean, he may have been absolutely correct in what he said. Was it slightly rash of the BBC and perhaps biased to allow the piece to go out? I don't think it was biased. I mean, you can rash possibly in terms of the way that the big media organisation like this always has to play the political game to an extent too, but I think the BBC felt they had a very fair editorial to m- point to make, which was this, that the other party leaders had agreed to be interviewed by Mr Neil, who's known for his uh, forensic questioning and is not somebody who, uh, who the faint-hearted would like to take on in a television studio. Despite that, Mr Johnson refused to do the interview. The Conservative Party had obviously decided the consequences of not doing it were worse than the potential ones of his doing it. Uh, and so Mr Neil delivered this piece to camera, this lengthy piece to camera about accountability uh, and simply saying that, you know, if you want to be Prime Minister, then you should make yourself open to answer, answer questions in a public forum. And, of course, Johnson has lashed out against the BBC in an almost Trumpian fashion. Is this really just his way to avoid independent scrutiny? I think I, I personally think there's a there's a great element of truth in that, and I think, as I say, his spin doctors have taken the calculation that he risked committing errors or saying things he didn't want to say if he was exposed to this interview, and so simply staying away. The consequences of doing that were not as bad as the consequences of doing it. I think, in a way, this is a political attack on independent media. You know, we live in a time also where the Labour Party, which suffered a disastrous election defeat here last week, has sought to blame the BBC somehow uh, for that and say that the coverage of their leader. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't fair. Um, And I think we're really living in a time where, I mean, politicians, right, you know, for centuries, literally, if not politicians, then monarchs have tried to influence the media and the way their story is told. And I think that now um, powerful politicians believe that not only do they have the right to try to influence that, they actually have the right to control it. And I think this is what we're trying, we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, as you say, being attacked from both ends of the political spectrum. Tony Hall, the director general, has denied this completely. What can a public broadcaster do in this situation? The, the BBC is in a very difficult situation because, as you mentioned in your introduction, the way that it is funded is that everybody in this country who owns a television set pays a certain fee to the government. So, in effect, it's it's taxpayer funded. Of course, this is woefully out of date in a way, and if one were setting up the system now, you would never do it this way. It's almost a century old, in fact, and this was a way in which um, broadcasting was first managed as a mass medium in this country after the First World War. So you can see that it is out of date, and that is really what the Conservative government seems to be hinting at now. They've got this um, comfortable majority. They feel they've got a mandate to introduce reform. And there are hints that um, the non-payment of this fee could be decriminalised with, of course, potential consequences for the BBC's revenue. Yeah, of course, the licence fee itself is guaranteed to continue until 2027. That's by Royal Charter. It can't be abolished without parliamentary legislation. But that doesn't mean the amount can't be wrangled over. But it was ever thus. I mean, that's been an issue for the broadcaster for years. It has. But I think in the changing media landscape, the BBC's critics see this uh, fee as increasingly 
unjustifiable. And it also has got critics here um, from the left and from the right. Uh, it's not, not got that many friends in the media. Most of the newspapers in this country, the most vocal ones, at least on this subject, are, are right wing. Their proprietors see the BBC as something who are, uh, as an organisation which is receiving public funding from which they don't benefit. Uh, and of course, Mr. Johnson himself is a, journal, a career journalist and a career journalist for the Daily Telegraph, one of the most right wing newspapers and one of the most strident critics of the BBC. Mm, James, thank you very much indeed. That is James Rogers. To Bangkok now, where plans to boost the city's agriculture are looking up. Asia's largest rooftop farm will be built on Bangkok's Tamasat University. As one of the world's most densely populated cities, climate-resilient green spaces in Bangkok, let alone any green pastures, are sparse and hard to come by. This is particularly concerning given Thailand's dependence on its agricultural society, which is still mainly supported by rural communities, and the fact that the Thai capital is projected to sink more than a centimetre annually. Designed by local landscape architect Korcha Korunvorakum, the new farm will curb threats of increased flooding while enhancing the existing use of land. Other Asian cities like Singapore and Hong Kong are already ahead of the game. As climate risks increase, urban farming will be a norm rather than a novelty. And finally today, our business editor, Venetia Rainey, has a polite request for a little privacy, please. Have you heard of Max Schrems? Don't worry if you haven't, you're not alone, but he is worth knowing about. This under-the-radar Austrian law student is currently on the front line of a major legal battle with Facebook, a battle that could redefine big tech's approach to privacy and affect hundreds of thousands of companies ranging from banks to car makers. Schrems has been a privacy activist for most of his 20s. His crusade began when, aged 23, he requested his digital footprint from the social media giant for a university paper. He was shocked by what he received, everything he'd ever liked, all of his private messages, and more. Since then, he's successfully brought down a widely used international data transfer system called Safe Harbor, and also set up None of Your Business, a non-profit that makes it easier for ordinary citizens to pursue similar privacy lawsuits. Tomorrow we'll see a crucial advisory ruling on his current battle with Facebook over their use of so-called standard contractual clauses, which basically transfer personal data to non-EU countries and are worth billions of dollars to a vast range of companies. Beyond the wide-reaching business and privacy implications, there's another reason that all of this matters. In general, most of us just say yes to the T's and C's, assuming we're powerless to get a better deal. But civil society activists such as Schrems show us it doesn't need to be like that. From grappling with Brexit in the UK to protesting corruption on the streets of Lebanon, fairness and transparency are worth fighting for, no matter how powerful or intransigent your opponent may seem. That's all in today's programme. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Thursday. Thursday.